So, if you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in the fourth week of listening to this letter that was written to some of the very first Christians who were living only 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. They are spread throughout a region of what's now Turkey. And we're going to jump right in today, and we're going to look at this passage under three points. First, we'll look at the privileges of believing in Jesus. So over the last couple weeks, we have seen how Peter returns again and again to the identity of those who trust in God as revealed in Jesus. Christians are those who are born again. God has raised us from death just like He did Jesus. He's made us His sons and daughters. He's bought us back from these useless ways of living so that we can live as His image bearers, as human beings were created to live. And it's as if all of this business of our identity crescendos in today's passage when Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. It's essential that we know who we are in this world, to whom we belong, and everything that goes with that. So we're first going to look at the privileges of believing in Jesus. But then second, we're going to look at something that's very different. We're going to look at the pain of believing in Jesus. I think the reason that Peter spends so much time telling Christians who they are and building up our identity is because there's pain that goes with the territory. And he's getting us ready for that pain. Jesus is the one who was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Jesus embodied this double identity that Christians also have to embody. Rejected by men, but chosen by God. So being a Christian will often look like this. And if that's the case, if Christians can expect a measure of rejection in this world, what's our responsibility? What do we do in return This is what we're going to look at last, the responsibility of believing in Jesus. So first, let's look at the privileges of believing in Jesus. You know how a lot of websites, when you scroll through a website, they have links embedded in in them so that you can click on a link and you can chase down more information. You know what I mean? And so you can go to look up one thing and then 10 minutes later you're still looking up something and you have no idea how you got to where you are. This is a little bit of how this passage is. The links embedded in this passage are links to Old Testament Scriptures. So some of you, as you look in your Bibles, you'll see that some of what Peter says is in quotation marks. Those are direct quotes from the Old Testament. But even when Peter isn't directly quoting from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, he's still drawing from the Old Testament and lots of the images that he's using here. So he's especially drawing from the idea of temple, the temple and priesthood in the Old Testament. Now remember that a temple is simply a place where people meet with God. So I want you to think with me to the creation story of Genesis. God makes human beings And he puts them in a garden. The garden is a place where they meet with God. 
So what else is the garden besides a garden? It's a temple. The garden is a temple. It's a place where people meet with God. This is fascinating as you read through the rest of the Old Testament and you see the temple being built and it's made to look a little bit like the garden. There are always plants on the walls and at the front because the temple is still a garden in a way. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, which uh, brings all the biblical story together, the place where God dwells with his people, the new city, Jerusalem, it's a temple, but it's also a garden. This is fascinating. Now, what is a priest? So a temple is a place where people meet with God and the garden in the very beginning is a temple. What is a priest? A priest is a person who helps people meet with God. They take care of the temple. Now, interestingly enough, Adam and Eve's job description was to keep and work the temple. This was it, to guard and to keep the temple. And this happens to be the same job description that the priests later in the Old Testament are given to keep and work the temple. So you see, Adam and Eve were supposed to protect the garden from evil. They were sort of like priests. They were to preserve the garden as a place where people could meet God, where God would dwell with his creation. And then they were to expand the garden so that eventually the whole world would become a temple, a place where people meet with God. And this is the image we get in the book of Revelation, right? God dwells over the whole earth. But we know what happened. They allowed the serpent to deceive them and they were kicked out of the garden. See, they, they didn't work and keep the garden, driving out evil from it. And so it could no longer be a temple, a place that functioned for people to meet with God. Now, ever since that story in Genesis... As you follow through the rest of the biblical story prior to Revelation, a temple is mostly a place that's built with stones where people still access God, but they use a priest to access God. Now, in this passage in 1 Peter, Peter says that those of us who believe in Jesus are being built up into a temple ourselves. We now become this mobile temple of God because his presence dwells within us. We function like the Garden of Eden, God dwelling with his people. You, just like Adam and Eve, are given this enormous privilege of experiencing God's active presence. This is one of the great privileges of believing in Jesus. We are God's temple, the place that God dwells on earth. Now, if we're honest, for some of us, for one reason or another, we've let this reality lose its luster. This just doesn't sound that exciting to some of us. Maybe you've never really considered it before, but we need to hear it afresh. The living Christ, the Lord of all creation, dwells among us. We are his temple on earth. This is astounding. An amazing privilege. But there's more. We also represent a brand new humanity. 
Now, it is a little bit edgy in our world to speak of a chosen race, isn't it? And it was in Peter's too. Part of the point is Peter goes straight for it. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter is not speaking to a monolithic group as if it's you know all middle-class Anglo-Saxons. That, that's not the people he's writing to. He's writing to uh, churches that are spread throughout this area of Turkey. Peter wouldn't even always know the makeup of these churches. Peter's saying that our racial and ethnic identities are now trumped by our relationship to Jesus. I hate that every time someone says the word trumped, It has another association. That's not the intention. Our racial, ethnic identities are truly overcome by our relationship to Jesus. In Him, we've become something new. Something that transcends normal human boundaries. We are a new race. A new humanity. And all of us together are royal priests. This means that God has called us, just like Adam and Eve, to oversee our corner of the world. And as we're able, we're to bring the world more into line with God's purposes. So Adam and Eve were given the job of expanding the garden into the world so that the temple would overtake the world. The whole world would become a place of God dwelling with humanity. And essentially what God has done is He's reinstituted this function for human beings. And He's given all of us a calling to go out into our little corners of the world and to be His priests. To oversee that corner of the world. Even if that corner of the world is just your own body. But your body is brought into full service of the King of the whole creation. And everything that you do is done in such a way that that thing is filled with God's beauty and God's intention. You see this incredible gift that God has given us? This privilege of being His people? We're His priests. Students, when you go to school, you are God's royal priests. You go into school with His own presence within you. And He's endowed you with the responsibility to bring everything that you do into His service. And it's not just a responsibility, it is this privilege. And all of us in our work get to do this similar thing. Now before we move on, there's one more thing. Peter says in the last verses of this section, it's uh, uh, 9 and 10, he says, once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, when we're honest, this is how most of us feel apart from God. Not a people. We don't know who we are. We don't know what our purpose is in this world. We're lost and we're aimless apart from God. But because of God's mercy, He's given us an identity. We know who we are. We are God's. We belong to Him. And we also, most of us, many of us anyway, we feel judged by the world as if we're not good enough. Some of us feel judged by God as if we're not good enough. And that's what Peter's saying. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You see, what defines you now is not judgment, but mercy. This is what makes you who you are. Mercy. We have extraordinary privileges simply because we've believed in Jesus. We're the temple of God. We are His priest. We are the new humanity. We're His beloved. It's essential we know these things. Because believing in Jesus also carries with it something else. Another identity. It carries with it pains. Even while we are God's children, even though we've been born again, there's another piece to who we are. So will you look at chapter 2, verse 11 with me? Beloved. See how he puts these two together? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There's a pain in this. You are beloved and yet you also are sojourners, exiles. You don't belong where you are. This is the third time Peter's called them this. And, and we're very early in the letter, aren't we? What makes these people strangers and exiles? There are different views on this. Were the people that Peter's writing to, were they forced from their homes in one place to go live where they are now? This is possible. This sort of thing happened in their world. There were multiple occasions where an emperor in Rome told all the Jews to get out. Just get out of town. We don't want you here. And by association, Christians were also usually included in this. This is possible. It's also possible that because of overpopulation in a city, he told them, some of you have to leave and you have to go populate another area. This could be the case. It could be that they're sojourners, sojourners and exiles in this way, literally. But there's one certain thing about their identity. Whether they were literally strangers in a new land or not, their Christian faith has made them feel like outsiders. There's a special pain here that has to do with their faith. So as you read through the letter, you see that these Christians are experiencing this barrage of skepticism and verbal abuse from the culture. One early historian, for instance, said that Christians were those who were given to a new and mischievous superstition. This was written right around the time 1 Peter was written. And what that means is that they saw the Christians as practicing a religion they didn't understand. And they were very devout, which was even more strange. The Christians in 1 Peter aren't necessarily being treated violently, but there was still, still a clear effort to discredit them, to publicly shame them. And this inevitably made them feel very out of place. They were strangers. They were exiles. But does this title fit us the same way? As we're listening to 1 Peter and he says, Beloved, as I urge you as sojourners and exiles, do we receive that identity ourselves? Well, we do need to know that it certainly fits Christians living in other parts of the world. Right now, this moment. One writer on 1 Peter tells a story of teaching a basic Christianity course to college students while on a mission trip to Mongolia. He was there for a short period of time, but a colleague had obtained permission from the authorities to rent a classroom. 
it, I think it was on a, in a cultural center that they rented the classroom. But on the second day of class, there were two officers who entered the classroom and told them to get out. And if they did not get out immediately, they would be arrested. They showed them their authorization. It didn't matter. Get out now. So they got out. They finished the class that day in, outside in freezing temperatures. Now, they were able to obtain access to the classroom again. But that's not the point. You see, the authorities had made their point. They were suspicious of Christianity, and they better not be troublemakers. You see, on another occasion, the same teacher was teaching in Taiwan, and he was called in by the authorities and said, I want to know if you're a troublemaker. They're speaking of his faith. Now, what's even more challenging is that this person is just on a mission trip. He's get, he gets to leave. But what about the college students that he's teaching? They're locals. And they're becoming foreigners in their own native land because of their commitment to Christ. You see, the more they choose to follow Jesus, the more of outsiders they will become. The more they will become sojourners and exiles in their own land. Now, this doesn't sound like what we experience. So do Peter's words apply to us? For a long time, being a Christian in America has not at all hurt us socially, has it? In fact, if anything, in most cases, it's helped. When I was in seminary in New Orleans, I went to get a job parking, doing valet parking. And as soon as I went in and they found out I was a seminary student, I was hired. I had the job. There was something about being a Christian, being a seminary student, that they associated with trustworthiness. And I assure you that it didn't qualify you to be a valet parker because that didn't last that long. I suspect most of you experience friendliness toward your faith at work. Most of you do. But there's something we need to be aware of. There's something we need to be prepared for. There's a shift occurring in the way our culture responds to Christianity. And it's not necessarily the word Christianity that is that people are allergic to. Sometimes it's the convictions of being a Christian. Christian faith is becoming more foreign and less respected. And for some of us, some of us it's happening quicker than with others. Let me give you two examples. Last week... Uh, GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine. John told me about this, so I guess he has a subscription to the magazine. <laughs> we knew it. No. <laughs> no. GQ published a list of 21 books a person never has to read. Number 12 on the list is the Bible, which they describe as moralistic and foolish. And in its place, they recommend a modern novel. Now, you might say, of, of course they would say that. We laugh it off as kind of silly on their part. I mean, they're getting more attention. We're talking about GQ, and we've never done this before in a service, right? But for a national magazine to outrightly denigrate the Bible in this way is fairly new. It's fairly new. Another story... Uh, 
Two weeks ago, the New Yorker published an article titled Chick-fil-A's Creepy Infiltration of New York City. The writer said, and I'm going to quote, Chick-fil-A's arrival in New York feels like an infiltration in no small part because of their pervasive Christian traditionalism. He then describes Chick-fil-A's headquarters, which are, and I quote, adorned with Bible verses and a statue of Jesus washing a disciple's feet. And then he says, it seems like a non sequitur, it closes its stores on Sundays. (laughs) Somehow this is a threat, I'm not sure. No, all these elements are foreign to New York culture. So Chick-fil-A's arrival is this suspicious infiltration. Notice too in this how traditional is made to be a bad word here. And I wonder if they're thinking by traditional that they mean like 1950s American Christianity. When when we talk about traditional Christian values, what we should be talking about is what most Christians in most time and history have believed. About 1950s American Christianity, we're talking about 2,000 years of Christianity. Now, some of you are saying to this, that's why we live in East Rockingham County and not New York. But these stories reflect something that's happening all over, some places more quickly than others. You might not experience them yet, but you will. You will. Some of you will already find yourselves in conversations where if you're talking about politics and you say that abortion is wrong, you will be a minority and you will be rejected and called names. Or if you tell a friend that their divorce is wrong, your friend will reject you and call you names. Or if you try to hold some traditional position on sexuality, you will be rejected. You'll be called something of a Neanderthal, unloving, Behind the times. Teenagers, I I think this is probably the hardest for you. Because if you say sex before marriage is wrong, you're going to be laughed at. You might be called names. It's so difficult. It's so important that you know who you are, to whom you belong. How do you deal, deal with these things? A lot of us in the future are going to find it more and more difficult to believe and live the way Christians of most centuries and most places have believed and lived. And this is part of the pain of believing in Jesus. Peter even says to these Christians, some of your behavior others are going to call evil. This is what he says, that some of the Gentiles among you are calling you evildoers because of the way you live. But he tells them, God's going to vindicate you. When God returns, those who saw what you did as strange will eventually say, the Christians were right. That was what it meant to be human. That's how we should have lived. So what do we do in the meantime? Here's the thing. I think because Christians in America have had it well for so long, 
we don't know how to deal well with being in the minority. We don't know how to deal well with being rejected, with being called names. Our gut reaction can be to get mad, complain, and claim our rights. To wish for the way things were. We need to accept that while there are privileges for believing in Jesus, there's also pain. And one of the privileges is not cultural power. That's not one of the things we're promised. It's pain that directly results from following Jesus. And this is exactly what it was like for Jesus. He's the cornerstone who was rejected by men but chosen by God. This is who we are. We're living stones, sometimes rejected by people, always chosen by God, always accepted by God. And our relationship to the Father means we shouldn't resort to anger and a kind of victim status because of how people treat us. We're His people, and we have a different responsibility. And here's our last point, the responsibility of believing in Jesus. So in the past, Christians in America had influence so that in a way we could control the direction of some things. Not everything, but some. And our anger arises now because we can't control things in the way that we would like. The people uh, that Peter is writing to clearly can't control their culture. They don't have political influence or leverage. They don't have the power. So what are they to do instead? Are they to bow to culture, to accommodate, to make their message more accommodating? No. Instead, Peter says, proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Through word and action, they're to display the goodness of God. If they're going to have influence, this is the way it's going to happen. It will happen as they suffer wrongdoing, but continue to be a hopeful people instead of an angry people. Continue to be positive and positive and generous instead of vengeful and cynical. As they live holy lives, even though they're rejected, made fun of, and called names, their lives will be shown to be the true way of being human, and their God will be shown to be the true God. Students, you can be confident in Jesus. You can be confident that you belong to Him, that you're His, so that you don't have to worry about being rejected by others. Now, please don't hear me say that it's not painful, because it is. But Jesus will be faithful to you. And when you're rejected, your called names continue to love those who reject you. It'll utterly confuse them. But one day, they're going to understand, and they're going to thank God for you. They will. Now, adults, how are you called to embody God's goodness in your life, in your vocation? How are you called to proclaim His excellencies, to resist the anger and the cynicism that can coincide with losing power, but instead to serve?
and love under the God who has made you his and who rules over all. We should not expect to be a controlling voice in culture, but we should aim to impress the world with Christ's goodness because he is truly good and he has shown us the way to be truly human. So Christians have the greatest privileges in the world simply because we've believed in Jesus. We're his temple. We're his priest. We are his representatives on earth. We didn't even know who we were before. But now we're God's children. We are royal priests. So are you God's child? Do you experience these privileges? If you don't, let's talk. Please come. Let's talk. But for now, there is a pain that goes along with being God's child experiencing these privileges. It does take courage and endurance to follow Jesus, but one day we will be fully vindicated. People will say, the Christians were right. And until then, we have a task to do. To proclaim God's goodness in word and deed. To show forth the righteous love of God. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.